0: smile when um, you hear that song and see that video, you need Jesus, and luckily you're in the right place today, because uh, we're going to talk about him. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into the scriptures together. Jesus, thank you for this time that we have over the next few minutes. Would you allow us to be present here with you, to hear your voice, to know your love? Spirit, would you stir us, challenge us, mess with us? Invite us to Jesus, we pray, in his name, amen, amen. Well, I was heading back a a few weeks ago from a week of teaching in Paraguay with OM and had a great week and was heading to the airport, and I got to the airport in Paraguay, which isn't a huge airport, and um, my broken Spanish met the desk attendant's broken English, and what I thought he said to me was, When you get to Buenos Aires, you're going to be flying out of a different airport than you fly into. Now, this was news to me because it was not on my itinerary that I was supposed to change airports, but evidently, Buenos Aires has two airports. One of them is for more local and commercial flights, and the other one is for international flights. And so he says, it's going to be about uh, an hour away from one airport to the other. And I looked at him and said, am I going to make it? And he took a pause that let me know he didn't think I would. And then he said, oh yeah, you're going to make it. And so I asked him, is my flight on time? And he said, yeah, absolutely, flight's on time. I texted my wife, good news, flight's on time. Bad news, I might not make said flight. So I get on the plane in Paraguay, flight to Buenos Aires. I run through customs, broken Spanish. I get on a cab that I think is going to take me to the right airport. And, um, Pay him a lot of money, and he gets me there. I run in there about 8.30 and 8.40. I'm standing in front of the attendant at their desk, and I said, am I going to make my flight? And she looks at me, and she said, oh, yeah, you're going to make your flight. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, oh, it's delayed nine hours. (laughs) Have you ever had a day that just didn't go the way you thought it would? Beautiful Buenos Aires, I got to spend an extra evening there, whole night, and, but I mean, man, if you have kids, you know that feeling, right, if you have this vision of the way that the day is going to go, and you get all the kids ready, and if you're anything like me, I would get them ready, and the youngest one, we'd be walking out of the door, and it'd be like, what is that God-awful smell, right? <laughs> oh, man, right, and the day is just off to a bad start, or, I mean, now, it's hard to get anywhere in Denver on time, isn't it? I mean, so crowded, and... Those little things have the ability to change the way that our entire day goes, don't they? Those little things that just throw us off and, and they change our attitude, they change our mindset. They become like this lens that we see the entire day through. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to have something throw me off and to have a bad attitude for the rest of the day. Then I read something like this by a guy named Nick. Vujovic, he said this, he was born without arms and without legs, and he said, we have absolutely no control over what happens to us, but we can control how we respond. If we choose the right attitude, we can rise above whatever challenges we Okay, so in a moment of absolute transparency, I feel a little bit convicted. Anybody with me? Yeah, a delay in a flight, a diaper blowout, a delay because of traffic, or anything else that's come about in our day, in your day, in mine, is nothing compared to what he goes through on a daily basis. Yeah? And yet, some way, he can find the resources deep down inside of him to say, listen, the thing that's going to shape my day is the attitude that I'm going to choose to have. And so look up at me for a moment. You are 100% in charge of your attitude. You can choose to have a better, different outlook and attitude on life, and it will shape the life that you live. They've been doing all these studies recently, and what they're finding is that there's no greater determining factor on the quality of life that you have than your attitude. And if you've traveled abroad at all, and you've seen people that have far less than we do, and yet they have this happiness in them, this joy in them, this attitude in them that's just unbelievable, you know that's true. That your attitude shapes the quality of life that you have, but they've also determined that your relationships By and large, whether they're quality relationships and healthy relationships are not determined by how people respond to you, but by your attitude and the way you respond to them. They've determined that your success in the workplace, the main determining factor, if you're successful in your workplace, is the attitude that you bring to it. And I don't know about you, but I can come up with a number of excuses of why I'm right in having a bad attitude. Anyone with me? Right. Yeah, me too. I mean, just turn on the news. Hey, just watch the debate tonight. (laughs) I promise I won't go there anymore, but listen to the way that the great pastor and author Chuck Swindoll put it. He said this. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life Attitude to me is more important than education, more important than money, more important than circumstances, than failures, and then successes. It's more important than what people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or scale. It will make or break a company, a church, a home, I'll insert this, or a marriage. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people act in a certain way. Anybody want to say amen? Amen. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. And Swindoll says, I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me, and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Have you ever tried to change a bad attitude though? I mean, have you ever recognized in yourself, man, I have a bad attitude. I'm, um, I'm what I call a grumpy napper. Okay. (laughs) So if I, if I take a nap, it could be a great nap. I'm waking up grumpy, right? It could be a beautiful nap. I wake up on the wrong side of that nap, right? And I will recognize this in myself, so I try not to nap, but then, right? But when you try to change a bad attitude, don't you just find yourself getting a little bit more frustrated? Like, man, my attitude's bad, and it's getting worse, and I'm the problem. What do we do? I mean, how are we, are we supposed to just sort of self-talk? Are we supposed to try to encourage ourselves. What should we do? when we have a bad attitude? Because it shapes our life. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Because the entire first 11 verses of this chapter are going to be focused on one primary thing. And it is our mindset. Our attitude. Because our attitude impacts everything about it. And the first thing that Paul's going to do is he's going to answer that question. What do we do when we have a bad attitude? What do we do when life doesn't go the way that we want it to? How do we respond in a way that will allow us to have a mindset that influences the way that we live that's for God's glory, our joy, and the good of his world? Here's what he says. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, and, and this word here, if, You could read it in in the Greek, it carries with it this idea of not a hypothetical, but because, or in light of the fact that there is encouragement, because he's assuming that it's true. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in his spirit, any affection, sympathy, and complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one what? mind. And then Ive uses the word "attitude. Have this attitude amongst yourselves." But it's interesting. Before he ever addresses their attitude, he addresses the reason that they're empowered to have a different type of attitude, an attitude that is not shaped by just their temporal circumstances, but rather by their eternal reality. And so here's what he wants to say. He's like, okay, you guys, because of the fact that you're encouraged in Christ, because of the fact that you have comfort from his love, so he says, hey, follower of Jesus, do you recognize that the love of God is over you like a tidal wave, that you are enveloped into it? that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, his heart is good towards you. Do you recognize that? If you've participated in his spirit or sense his spirit lives inside of you and it says that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts, because you've participated in that, his affection literally from the very bowels of his being is good over you. Any sympathies? He's going, hey, you could try to change your attitude by trying to change your attitude. Or you could change your attitude by reflecting on your reality. Because the truth of the matter is, friends, we are people who have experienced the love of God in an amazing way. We are people who have been encouraged by God, who have been loved by God who have the affection of a good father over our lives, the sympathy of our God for us, and we've been invited to participate in the spirit. And for Paul, that's like earth-shattering, crazy, mind-blowing type of reality. And isn't so much of Christianity, so much of what you hear is, try harder, do more. But with Paul and his writing from jail to the church at Philippi, it's remember what God has done for you. So many people that I meet are trying to live in the way of God without experiencing the heart of God. And we run up against a brick wall and we wonder why. And we default to, I got to have a better attitude. The Bible tells me I should have a better attitude. The Bible also tells you how remind yourself that you are loved. Find encouragement in the heart of God for you and towards you. The spirit of God lives in you, friend. He has affection for you. He's good towards you. And so this is the first building block that Paul wants to lay down. And listen to the way that he goes on and he expands from there. He says, so in light of this, after you've experienced all of this, and, and just as a, a quick aside, in modernity, we've often reflected poorly on experience. So you hear followers of Christ say, well, it's not all about experience. And to that, I would say yes and amen. That being a follower of Christ is always, always, always about more than an experience. But look up at me, it's never less nevertheless you've been you've been encouraged you've been loved his spirit lives inside of you that's experiential all of these words in this first these first two verses are do nothing in light of that do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Is that not a great line? So none of us get to cop out and say, well, I just can't do that. Because Paul responds and goes, no, you're in Christ. You can. You can. By his spirit, you can. As you recognize his love, you can. Who, speaking of Jesus, who though in very form... Was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's what Paul does. Paul lays out the reality that you are found in the love of God, that you experience His Spirit, and that you're encouraged by Him. And then he says, okay, in light of that reality, you can have a mind-changing shift. In verse 5, here's the way he says it. He says, have this mind or this attitude among you, that that experience and that reality leads to a different type of attitude And then throughout this passage, he's going to say, in light of that new attitude, live in this way. Let that reflect your actions. And how much of Christianity have you heard that just focuses on this? Okay, try really hard to not do that. There's a whole list of things you should do, things you shouldn't do. But really, everything we do flows from who we are. And the scriptures address that. You can't live in the way of the Father unless you have the heart of the Father. And here's what Paul would say to the church at Philippi, and here's what I would want to say to you today. What happens in you will always, every single time, determine what happens through you. What happens in your heart, what happens in your mind, determines what happens with your hands. It always does. So Paul, in the book of um, Romans, after 11 chapters of theology and laying out the fact that we are sinful people in need of the grace of God and that he has, by his grace, provided that, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, as if to say, read the 11, first 11 chapters again, look at his mercy towards you, experience it, taste it. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. See, he wants to remind us what happens in you is always going to determine what happens through you every single time. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time together is I want to ask the question, okay. Where does the power lie, and whose power is it, and how do we live with an attitude that reflects the heart of our Father? How do we live with an attitude? Because attitude shapes our day, it shapes our weeks, it shapes our years, it shapes our life. How do we live with an attitude that's reflected, as Paul says, as the same as that of Christ Jesus? Sort of a high bar, yes? We all agree? That's that's quite the height to shoot for. But I want to remind ourselves that the attitude that we are called to live leads to the actions that we are invited to have, but underneath it all, the question is, are you experiencing the good heart of your father? Okay, so jump back in with me, verses three and four, and we're going to look at this first shift in attitude that Paul's talking about here. He says this, so do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This idea of do nothing out of selfish ambition. You could also view this as do nothing with prideful motives trying to to lift yourself up. The great reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, both said that at the heart of every sin is pride. One thing lies underneath it all. It's pride. A self-exaltation. And we all know that people who have, at their core, selfish ambition are dangerous people to be around. Are they not? I mean, we've seen selfish ambition ruin families, We've seen selfish ambition ruin companies. You remember back on Enron and selfish ambition, the way that that drove them to the ledge. We've seen selfish ambition play a part in our political atmosphere. We've seen selfish ambition determine the way that we look at the refugee crisis in our world. I mean, there isn't anything we see in our world that has not been touched by this idea of, I've got to get mine. And here's the reason that selfish ambition is so dangerous in you and in me. We will run over whoever is in our path to get what we want if this is our MO. And so, in contrast, Paul says, no, that's not not the attitude that you're called to have. The attitude that you are called to have is one of what? Humility. It's this first attitude shift Or attitude change It's reflective of what the great pastor John Stott said and writer He said pride is your greatest enemy But humility is your greatest Friend So in light of the experience that you've had With your good father The attitude that you're called to embrace Is one of humility not of haughtiness of, Of pride, of arrogance It's interesting if you we're to go back and read the Greek New Testament that this was written in. This word, humble or humility, is two words put together. It's a compound word. The, the first word is lowly, and the second word is mind. To be lowly of mind, it's bringing these two ideas together. It's really interesting. I I went to a global leadership summit this year put on by Willow Creek, and one of the speakers there was talking about the three characteristics that they always look for in employees. One of those characteristics is humility. You know why that's fascinating? Is before the scriptures came around, and when Paul was writing to the church at Philippi in this day, in this time, humility was viewed as a very negative thing. I mean, they would have looked at somebody who was humble and gone. what a a loser. That guy is so humble. So if we have a positive view of humility now, we have the scriptures to thank for it. It's a distinctly and uniquely Christian characteristic in its positive form. Here's the most shocking part of it all though. It's not that we are called to be humble or lowly of mind. It's that God himself is reflective of this characteristic. That that's who he is at his very core. Your God is a humble God. That's crazy. Jesus says this when he's speaking to the crowds, inviting them to come and follow him. He says, listen, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Or you could read that same Greek word, humble in heart and find rest for your souls find rest for your souls i think andrew murray the great author in his book humility captures it well he says christ is the humility of god embodied in human nature the eternal love humbling itself clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and to save us but let's chat for just a moment. Humility is probably the slipperiest of all graces. Because just when you think you have it, you've lost it. <laughs> right? And have you ever met anybody that was like, hey, my name's Ryan Paulson. Ryan Paulson. Um, I am the most humble person you're ever going to meet, right? I mean, nobody. Right? And right when you think you nailed it, man, I am really humble. <clears throat> you've lost it, Right? So the question becomes, if we're called to be humble, how in the world do we go about this? See, Christian humility is simply a reflection of recognizing who we are in light of who God is. All you need to do to be humble is go outside at night, look up at the sky, and remember you made none of it. And the God who did make it, is holding it all together and you are included in that all. And if he took his hand off it for a second, you would spin out of control. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. And Paul goes on, he says, listen, we're called to be humble and we do that by reflecting on who we really are. Now listen to this next thing he says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or inhumility, so that's the attitude, and then the action follows, count others, As more significant than yourself. I mean, anybody want to go yet? nailed that one? (laughs) Me neither. Me neither. Here's what the the NIV would say. Consider others. It's impossible to be others focused if you are self-obsessed. You know this if you've ever walked in that prison of being self-obsessed. And you know that if you're around other people who are self-obsessed is that you don't exist because they're so focused on them. So here's the invitation, is to have an attitude of humility that reflects itself in an action of being considerate of others. To be considerate simply means to focus on someone or to give them their due attention. Okay, so let me push into that for a second. Because I think there's something here for us, you guys. Um, Considering others, I think there's three aspects to that. Number one, means that we actually see the people around us, it means that we see their pain, it means we see their joys. To be considerate means that we are aware of other people, people other than ourselves. And listen, the human heart is often tied up in pride. It's only Jesus who releases that. And without Jesus, we are a radio station in our mind that's all Ryan all the time. But the invitation of the scriptures is consider others. See other people, number one. Secondly, hear other people. Hear their story. Hear their pain. I think one of the least appreciated commodities in our day and our time is undivided attention. When was the last time that you went out to dinner with somebody you cared about and didn't put your phone right in between the two of you? Like what if what if we actually did this, you guys? To live it out. What if we, what if we three, what if we sought to understand before we demanded to be understood? Here, here's the thing. It would change your relationships, it would change your marriage, it would change your home, it might change your neighborhood. The ripple effects of that would be unbelievable, but it only happens if you know you are loved by the king. If he's for me, I can be for you here's how Paul continues here's how Paul continues verse 6 after saying that after saying that we have this mind of Christ this attitude of Christ he says who through who though he was in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man so just a little bit of theology that we need to unpack here because this is a dense verse. Okay? So form literally means to have all of the characteristics to embody or to reflect in reality. So what Paul is saying is not that Jesus was a human and became God. Oh no. What Paul is saying is that Jesus has always been God and that he clothed himself in humanity. Those are two very different things. What Paul is declaring in this passage unequivocally and crystal clearly is that Jesus always has been God, always will be God, and his name will be praised throughout all the ages. That's what he's saying. He says he did not count equality with God a thing to be what? Grass. Now, literally, this word in the Greek means to chase after something, to try to seize something, or to wield it for your own power. So, put it together. Jesus was God, but he did not consider equality with God a thing that he needed to chase after, a thing that he needed to grab for, a thing that he needed to reach out for and take. Why? Because he already had it. It was his from the beginning of time. But he, what? Emptied himself. He emptied himself of all. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. This word emptied in the Greek is the word kenosis. It literally means to empty. There you go. (laughs) But listen, will will you look up at me for a second? In emptying himself Jesus did not lose what it means to be God. He revealed what God is like. God has it all, and yet is the greatest giver, the most generous being that you could ever possibly imagine. When Jesus clothes himself in humanity, he empties himself, but he declares to you and to me what God is like, he doesn't cease to be God, he reveals that God is the ultimate giver, the emptier, not one to be exalted and to chase after and grasp after that, but one that loves to give. And so here's the attitude, that if we're going to follow him, we're called to have. That we're pouring ourselves out, not filling ourselves up or lifting ourselves up. That's not what this being a follower of Christ is about. And can we all agree that if we don't know that we're loved, if we haven't participated in the Spirit, if we aren't aware of the affection of our Father towards us, if the experience isn't there, that this is impossible? Yes, it is. It's absolutely impossible because if we feel like we need to define ourselves and defend ourselves, we will never be willing to give ourselves. Equality with God or revealing God finds its truest truest expression in Jesus pouring himself out. Friends, this is what God is like. I don't know about you, but I find myself wrestling for this one, that this does not come natural and it does not come easy. And maybe the litmus test for us is... Am I willing to, at times, am I willing to admit that I don't add up? Am I willing to admit in a world that's filled with competition and wanting to get one step up on everybody else, and if I can get one step up on them and put them down, then I feel a little bit better about myself. If I'm living that way, I cannot be living in the way of Jesus. The the other thing that I'd say is we cannot live pouring ourselves out, not lifting or filling ourselves up if, if, if we can't celebrate everybody's successes. Have you ever been around somebody that's like, man, they cannot admit that somebody else did well? You ever worked with somebody like that, been in an office with somebody like that? Unless their name's attached to it, it's a terrible idea. (laughs) Or like... My kids have started to like watching reruns of America's Funniest Home Videos to the glory of God. I'm like, this whole show is built around laughing at other people's pain. Next episode, right? I mean, but how often do we live in that same way, with that same weight? We want to lift ourselves up. The way of Jesus is to pour ourselves out. And here's the way it's epitomized. He emptied himself by taking the form of what? a servant. Yeah, so the attitude is, I am pouring myself out, not lifting myself up. The action is, I'm looking for ways to serve other people. Guys, this is the way of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, we've been around church for so long, probably, that that doesn't shock us anymore. That should shock us, that God himself is saying, I'll take up the towel, I'll wash the feet, I'm not here that you're going to serve me. I'm here to serve you. (laughs) Crazy to give his life as a ransom for many. A few hundred years ago, there were a few men, and they were digging out this huge stump from the ground, and they, they couldn't move it. And a man came by on a horse, and he asked the corporal who was standing there next to his soldiers what they were doing And he said, oh, they're trying to dig out this big stump from the ground. And the guy on the horse asked the corporal, well, why aren't you helping? And the guy looks back at him and says, I'm the corporal. I give the orders. And at that point, George Washington got off of his horse, (laughs) took up a shovel, and started to dig it out with these soldiers. And they got it moving. He got back on his horse, and he said to the corporal, if you ever need any help, Just ask for the Commander-in-Chief. I'd be happy to come help. That's the way we're supposed to live. Not just having responsibility or privilege that we use for ourselves. But here's the big question, you guys. Do you leverage what you have to help the people you have influence over? That's the way of Jesus. Not using it to power over them and to domineer, but using it to build them up and to serve them. Okay, so let me just hear, one of the things I absolutely love about this church is is you get this. You get this. This week, there will be roughly 50 people, maybe more, maybe less, who are helping to open this space so that five homeless families can come and can live here this week. I love that we have a church that does that. Every single week, 40 to 50 of you work at our food bank. You make runs to pick up food. You help package food together. You help distribute it on Saturday morning so that 70 to 100 people every single week can have food. That's awesome. That reflects the heart of Jesus, you guys. That there's somewhere between 60 and 70 people who serve on a given Sunday morning to make sure that our worship services happen. I mean, did you know that you would not be able to see me or hear me if people did not get here at 6 a.m. to get this space ready? To make sure all the lights come on, which sometimes they do. That There are 50, over 50 of you that are actively participating in children's ministry. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for partnering with my wife and I to make disciples out of our three little rugrats. I love you. I do. But I just want to say thank you. Because I haven't been around a lot of churches that reflect this heart of Jesus in such a beautiful way. And I love being a part of that. So here's how Jesus or how Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi ends this section. He says, "And being found in human form, he Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." I think one phrase could epitomize and embody the way that Jesus lived every single day on this earth. One phrase And it's this, not my will, but yours be done. He knows that he's the son of God and deeply loved. His attitude is, okay, I don't need to control everything that happens around me. I just simply need to be obedient to the God who has called me. I'll admit to you guys, I am not great at that. I love to control things. I love to be in charge. I love to have my hands. I love that. But the invitation from the scriptures is not to control, but to be obedient. So here's the thing, you guys. If there is a footnote at the end of your, Jesus, I will follow you, one, see footnote, only if it's not true obedience. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. Obedience is an attitude before it's ever in action. It's saying back to the the God who created you, God, you have my life. I lay it down, and you can use it for whatever you want for the glory of your name. God, I'm willing to share my faith with the people that you bring in contact with me. God, I'm willing. I'm willing to stand up for the things that are right in a workplace where I know I'm going to get lambasted for it. God, I want to follow you with my whole heart and everything that I am. No footnote, no qualifiers, you've got me. Obedience is an attitude before it's ever an action. And when it turns into an action, here's what it looks like. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. It's a self-giving, sacrificial love. The attitude is, God, I'm willing to follow. And whenever somebody says, God, I'm willing to follow, God says, well, then it's time to get loving. Because that's what he he looks like. That's who God is. It's the way of Jesus. He doesn't kill his enemies. He dies for them. This is sacrificial love. It's the way of the lamb that Jesus is, the risen lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He wins victory by giving himself away. And his invitation is pick up your cross, come and follow me. So in the quietness of your heart, maybe in the bulletin outline that you have right now, I just wanna ask, what what does love demand of you this week? What does love look like? Who are the people around you that God has brought into your path that you could be recklessly, ruthlessly generous to? Maybe it looks like being vulnerable and saying, listen, this is is what's really going on in my heart and my life. Maybe it looks like just noticing people and valuing them. But if our attitude is, Jesus, we want to be obedient, he says, okay. If you want to be obedient, then live in the way of love. And see, friends, we always, always, what goes on inside of us always determines what happens through us. It's why hurt people hurt people. But it's also why loved people are freed to love people. And this passage ends with this great hymn or song that they would gather around in the first century to remind themselves of who Jesus was. I'm going to read it as our benediction. Actually, we're going to sing a chorus after this, but it's where we're going to land the plane. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every single name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, there will come a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is not one square inch around his globe where Jesus Christ does not cry out, Mine. It's all his because of the sacrifice that he made, the love that he displayed, and the spirit that he's put inside of us. You and I don't have to wait for eternity someday to start worshiping and lifting high the name that stands above every single name. Your day is today. It's today. Today. And I just invite you to step into it. You have been loved by the King. Therefore, you can have the mind of Christ. And when you have the mind of Christ, you can live in the way of Jesus. Friends, the world needs more followers of Jesus who aren't trying really hard to get it right, but who are reminding themselves that they're deeply loved and then living out of that. See, friends, in the kingdom of God, downward mobility Always leads to an upward trajectory. Let's pray. So, before you go rushing out of here, I just want to give you a moment to pause. just want to say to you because you have been encouraged by his love because you have participated in his spirit because the affection of the father flows over your life and because he looks upon you with sympathy because that's all true you lay down your pride and receive the humility he's calling you to walk in instead of lifting yourself up would you pour yourself out and would you say back to this king of kings and this lord of lords today God I want to be obedient wherever you lead whatever you say I'm willing to go because of all that you've done for me in light of that Lord please help us be people who see other people Help us be people who serve other people and help us be the type of people that sacrifice in the way that you've sacrificed for us. Help us live in your way with your heart. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing this last section this benediction together?